In the 4th and 5th centuries BC, Athens became one of the world's first democracies. What was democracy like so long ago? It meant overthrowing the kings and oligarchs who had traditionally ruled the Greek cities. It meant self-government and liberty for citizens. But with this new freedom came new challenges. No longer did citizens of Athens simply take orders. Instead, they jostled to see who would lead. They argued with each other. They used logic and emotion, passion and threats. Above all, they relied on persuasion. And because the Greeks were superstitious, they called on a mysterious goddess for help. She's hardly a celebrity today, although the English word persuasion is derived from her name. She was the goddess of cajolery, charm, and seduction. The Greeks knew her as Patho. The Romans renamed her Sueda. At some point, the English added a purr to the front of her name as in Persuada, and thus was born the word persuade, and reliance on persuasion drove the new democracy. The Greeks were certain that every man who stood to make a point, who tried to convince his fellow citizens about anything, was guided by the divine patho. Welcome to episode 55 of Garner's Greek Mythology. We have listeners from 179 countries, so welcome to everyone wherever you are. I'm your host, mythologist Patrick Garner. Remember to visit Amazon to check out my four books about the Greek gods in the contemporary world. They are part of the Naxos Quartet and include The Winnowing, Cycladic Girls, Homo divinitus, and all that lasts. As an aside, Homo divinitus is also available as an audiobook. You can also learn more about them and this podcast at patrickgarnerbooks.com. My novels have been bestsellers. They're great entertainment and echo the themes in this podcast. Who are the characters in these books? Your favorite Greek gods, of course. So visit my website at patrickgarnerbooks.com, then link over to Amazon and treat yourself. From the beginning of Greek democracy, Athenian men would meet monthly at an open-air gathering spot called the Phinx. There are 6,000 citizens from every walk of life would argue and debate issues. A rotating council of 500 men would pick the topics and themes. Arguments and counter-arguments would go on throughout the day. Because this was a democracy, any citizen could speak. Each became a politician. Power accrued to those able to argue well. As historian Bettany Hughes writes in the Hemlock Cup, the bigoted, the mildly crazed, and the vindictive might all have their say. Of course they would. Freedom of speech mattered. 
yet persuasive speakers chose their words with care. And the most powerful and articulate speakers prayed to Pytho before they stood. She would craft their sentences to make them plausible. Her inspiration brought on eloquence. She made each of those she favored forceful and influential. She alone, the Greeks believed, made every speaker more convincing. The glib, eloquent, and silver-tongued could thank Patho for their success. She was the power behind all persuasion. The Greeks weren't fools. They recognized that persuasion did not equal truth. In fact, they knew in their hearts that persuasion and seduction often went hand in hand. Seduction could be romantic, but it could also be a feat of intellect. The most passionate of orators could be convincing while still dealing in lies. Socrates is quoted by Plato as saying to the jury during his infamous trial in 399 BC, I don't know whether you've been convinced by my accusers, gentlemen, but I myself was almost carried away by them. Their arguments were so persuasive, and yet hardly a word of what they said was true. Who was this goddess? Patho's origin was frankly mysterious. Hesiod stated that she was the child of Okinios and Thetis, both titans. The poet Sappho and the playwright Aeschylus said that her mother was the goddess Aphrodite. There's logic in Aphrodite being her mother as Aphrodite was, needless to say, a seductress. Yet Aeschylus in the play Agamemnon contradicts himself, saying that her mother was not Aphrodite, but instead Ate, the spirit of delusion and infatuation, folly and fate. To add to the confusion about her origin, a Spartan, the lyric poet Alcamon writes that Patho's father was the mighty titan Prometheus. Regardless of her parentage, Patho lived on Mount Olympus with the other deities who surrounded Zeus. The comic playwright Aristophanes wrote, Patho's only shrine is eloquent speech, but he was wrong. She had an earthly lodging, in effect her home away from home, any visitor to the Acropolis who entered the sacred zone around the Parthenon first passed by the shrine of Patho. According to the ancient writer Pausanias, she had cult shrines in Argos, Megara, Sykyung, and throughout Athens. And whether the child of Aphrodite or not, she was depicted as that goddess's handmaiden, her statues were always found with Aphrodite's. And why not? Love is always associated with infatuation, desire, and too frequently, folly. Which leads us back to the silver-tongued and those who believe their slick, persuasive words. To be persuaded is, too often, 
to be misled. A speaker may be compelling yet, as Socrates is quoted as saying, may be taking his listeners for a ride. I noted that Patho was depicted as Aphrodite's handmaiden. She was also known as the handmaiden of marriage. The lyric poet Pindar called her the wise one who holds the secret key to holy love. She led brides into the bridal chamber. As Aphrodite's double, she cast a rosy beauty over new brides. Through her wiles and endless schemes, she turned many an unremarkable newlywed into an irresistible seductress. Later, as marriages matured, she softened arguments between husband and wife. The gentle words she placed on the lips of one or the other partner ended many an otherwise lengthy quarrel. She was often depicted with a white dove, the bird of peace. But as we have already seen, Patho was hardly trustworthy, a constantly changing goddess. She represented both sexual and political persuasion. She was believed to have been with Aphrodite during the abduction of Helen, the most beautiful woman in the world. You recall that a prince named Paris snatched Helen, the wife of King Menelaus, while the king was absent on a trip. Paris had been assured by Aphrodite that Helen was his for the picking, but Helen was far from convinced that she should trust Paris with anything. But her distrust was quickly dispelled. Pytho was there, and soon Helen was persuaded that she should accompany Paris to Troy. How did Pytho coax Helen to be unfaithful? Pytho threw a mist over Paris. When Helen viewed the womanizer, she saw a brave young man, a warrior far handsomer than her husband. She was swept with mad desire. Of course, her sudden longing was due to the spell cast upon her by the goddesses Aphrodite and Patho. Through Aphrodite, Helen fell in love, and through Patho, she was persuaded that she had no choice but to abandon her home for the open seas. Then, within a short time, the United Cities of Greece had declared war on Troy. Helen's became the face that was said to have launched a thousand ships. Patho's statues were found throughout Athens. Her willowy figure decorated urns and drinking cups. Pindar mentioned her in his odes and celebratory poems. She was paid high honors for inspiration, influence, and her supernatural ability to induce the most stubborn men to change their minds. The writer Isocrates in the late 4th century BC wrote that by giving annual sacrifices to Patho, men aspire to share the power that the goddess possesses. 
Sappho described her as bright as gold. Athene herself was said to rever Patho's gift, saying, Holy persuasion, too, I bless. Patho of the softest words brought Zeus himself to trial, and so I crown persuasion with success. Now good shall strive with good, and we shall all share the victory. Patho's power made sense as she was associated with primordial night. As we have seen, it was whispered that she was the child of Titans, or of the love goddess Aphrodite, or perhaps the offspring of the mighty Prometheus, or at the least, she had sprung from Ate, the spirit of folly and fate. Regardless, she was seductive, potent, and relentless. She had appeared out of the darkest night and now played under the bright skies of Greece. When men were blessed with her clear and vibrant words, they could persuade cities to go to war. They could have men banished for next to nothing. They could win trials with eloquent opinions that had no relationship to facts. This new democracy was a chance for bombast, oratory, and hyperbole. Nothing seemed impossible. That is, if the goddess had your back. And so it was that empty, persuasive words often carried the greatest weight. Pathos seemed to enjoy twisting facts so that what was false sounded true. She could be cruel or heartless in how she employed her gifts. Good men sometimes fell. The best were too often destroyed by the eloquence of others. Remember Socrates' statement to the jury 2,400 years ago. He said, while under trial for blasphemy, I myself was almost carried away by my accuser's arguments. They were grandly persuasive, yet hardly a word of what they said was true. Of all the philosophers of the time, Socrates was the most skeptical of Patho and her way with words. He was sure that persuasion meant the degradation of truth. His quest, unlike those who used words to win, was to distinguish the true from the false. Plato quotes him as saying, If you continue to delight in clever, idle arguments, you'll be qualified to argue, but never know how to live with men. As the historian Bettany Hughes writes, Athens in the late 5th century became a land of bluff, worshipping at the shrine of the goddess of persuasion. Suddenly, arguments mattered less than the amplified skill of the arguer, but Socrates' approach was rather different. He encouraged men to humility rather than arrogance, to honesty rather than self-delusion. In other words, Hughes says that Socrates rejected Pytho in her grand oratory. His interest was in the logic of speech. He sought words that could illuminate the truth. He embraced poverty and spent his life roaming the city barefoot. Most Athenians, on the other hand, sought wealth, 
One of Socrates' students asked him, Isn't wealth wisdom? Socrates replied, No. Wealth is the parent of luxury and indolence. And so, with that apology, Socrates became the enemy of the goddess Patho. Why? Patho disdained truth, instead seducing and coercing and sweet-talking her way. Socrates, on the other hand, talked straight, using candor and asking blunt questions in order to find what was true. It may have been inevitable that in 399 BC, before a jury of his peers, Socrates was found guilty of blasphemy and condemned to death. He could have escaped his beloved Athens. It was almost expected that he would. Many men who were similarly condemned had done so, but he chose to stay, which meant that he would face his execution. He was fearless. On the 30th day, after continuous discussions with friends about truth and life, he drank poison and died. How much of his fate should we attribute to Patho? He was her opposition. She put cloying, persuasive words in the mouths of his opponents. He argued against their lies. But passion swept the jury, all men who had known Socrates since his birth. As the trial unfolded, Patho watched. The false words of Socrates' accusers echoed in the finks. Their words were lies, but they were eloquent lies. We have to assume that Patho approved. Pretty words and cajolery mattered far more to her than truth. Listen carefully. This stealthy goddess continues to operate in the background even today. Join me for a future episode of Garner's Greek Mythology. And one more thing, if you have little ones in your life, there's a new children's book that should be on your bookshelf. It's called Read Aloud Stories for Young Listeners by D.K. Garner. There are no Greek gods but animals, always part of Greek life, play an important role in these charming stories. They talk with the children at the moment a little help is needed. Everyone can enjoy the stories of You Turn the Crow, Eli the Dog, Winky the Horse, Not George the Bunny, and Rudy the Rooster. Visit PatrickGarnerBooks.com for more information. And thanks for listening. This is your host, Patrick Garner. Garner.